Hello, good people. Mark Baber here. At long last, with I think episode eight, maybe nine, I think it's eight, of uh, my podcast, Begging to Differ. I need to apologize to two or three of you for the long gap of silence between podcasts. I think it was May the 4th, the last time I posted one, and here it is, October 11. Uh, So it's pretty clear that podcasting is not a real high priority with me, although, oddly enough, I think about it almost every day of my life. I got some good excuses for why there's been such a delay. I had this opportunity, uh, which is the first opportunity I've had in uh, 18 years to actually uh, speak four straight Sundays at uh, this church I go to. I call it the Vintage Opportunity. The name of my church is uh, Vintage Fellowship, Vintage Fellowship, and uh, our pastor was going to be on on uh, sabbatical, and he asked me maybe in uh, May or June to to speak the whole month of August. And so I immediately started thinking about that, and I, I was having what I thought were really good ideas. And I thought, man, I could do a podcast on that. And I thought, no, nah, man, I don't want to waste this on a podcast and then have to uh, come up with something else new when I was going to be speaking at, at Vintage in the month of August. So that's one of the reasons I kept putting it off because I thought, nah, this would work as a podcast, but... Uh, but I may use it in the month of August, and I thought, you know, I couldn't do do both and. Well, that's right or not, that's what I was thinking. Uh, and then another thing, to be very uh, vulnerable and out there about why maybe there's been a delay, I have these, these periods of self-doubt uh, about podcasting. I mean, it, if you think about it, I mean, there are... I would say an absolutely infinite number of amazing, good, relevant, engaging, informative, helpful, inspirational, entertaining, uh, otherwise magnificent podcast out there. I'm just amazed at how much is out in the podcast world that is worth giving one's time to. And uh, there's a number that I try to listen to every week, uh, not the least of which is the Robcast with Rob Bell. Another one I've fallen in love with is the Deconstructionist podcast. I mean, I can just go on and on. I, and I'm going to do a podcast someday on podcasts you should be listening to instead of mine. Uh, as a matter of priority, because they're out there. So, so to say all that, I'm being honest. Oh, man, I have self doubts. I think, why do you want to flood the uh, interweb with one more option that uh, when someone listens to yours, they could be listening to something much better? Whether that's good thinking or not, or healthy thinking or not, I don't know. But it has been my thinking, and I do find myself saying, Mark, why you? Why one more? Really, what what makes you think that your voice 
matters and that you ought to put it out there. And honestly, I, I fully don't know what makes me think my voice matters and that I ought to put it out there. All I know is, is that for the biggest part of my adult life, I've always had this compelling urge uh, to speak and hopefully to speak with a view to somehow, some way, in some shape or form, help another human being on the journey of life. Uh, there were several years there where that that took expression and, and something I understood to be important uh, and maybe still do, or certainly still do, and that is that there's good news. We call it gospel in church and theological circles, and that if good news is good news, it has to be shared. And uh, it's a complex web of thoughts and emotions about what all that means and how it expresses itself, but for whatever reason, that's kind of been a part of my life story. And even though a little over 18 years ago, I, I got out of professionally speaking uh, for reasons probably about anybody that listens to this knows, which I don't mind mentioning it again and, and may maybe we'll do so later, but I got out of professional speaking and uh, I would speak a time or two a year in various contexts and always find it meaningful. I always feel fully alive when I'm trying to share some good news about either personal story or my limited understanding of life and and try to help people on the journey of just living. So, any rate, for whatever reasons, that's just a couple of them. I hadn't been podcasting much lately. Uh, and as I was just saying, man, for reasons I can't fully explain, identify, or understand, I just always have this compelling sense of urgency to say something. Uh, and odd as it is to me, uh, a few of you actually listen. And uh, recently, uh, a few of you have pointed out to me uh, in terms like this, uh, Mark, you have not done a podcast in a while. Uh, one just recently was a good friend of mine, uh, Skip Collins, pastor of a mega church in uh, uh, Umshlanga near Durban, South Africa. An American guy that I met back in 1988 or so, or I think it was, in uh, early 89. And uh, he was over in the States, came by for a visit, and said that to me. And uh, a greater compliment maybe I've never had in my life than to have a guy I respect like Skip Collins say, man, you hadn't done a podcast in a while. So that kind of uh, prodded me on and... Uh, and so here we are, given one. Man, in the, in the last couple of weeks, I don't know why I keep saying man. I guess it's just one of my mannerisms, but to include the women, uh, men, women, all who might listen. In the last couple of weeks, I have binge listened to uh, a couple of podcasts. 
One, I may have mentioned just earlier, uh, the Deconstructionist podcast, Wrestling Through the Beautiful Journey. And I've been binge listening to those guys while playing golf uh, alone. I have a group of guys that I play golf with, but they're weenies, some of them, and it, it got colder like today. It was 50 degrees, and none of them showed. So I played nine holes by myself and was able to listen to a really cool episode of The Deconstructionist. Did that yesterday. And, uh, man, those guys, Adam Warlick and John Williamson, I think are their names, are two guys that have been on a faith journey and, uh, like many of us, you know, come to that point in life where where they begin thinking that maybe what was handed to me and my family of origin and what I kind of just was always in, maybe we need to take a hard look at that. And thus, uh, this phenomenon of deconstruction uh, is expressing itself in the world in many different ways. The way I understand deconstruction is, is that we're being honest enough and humble enough to admit that I was born into a family and that family had ways of living and doing life and they kind of handed what was a human construct to us as a good channel to live your life in. For me, it was no doubt. I mean, I hit the lottery when it came to being born into a family. Gip and Imogene Baber were my parents. And uh, honestly, I, I'm not BSing when I say if there were ever two finer human beings in the world than my mom and dad, uh, I don't think I've met them. And uh, what a gift to be born into that kind of construct with just human goodness. And... Uh, Although sometimes I uh, see now as a 67-year-old man look, looking back, maybe some confused human goodness when it came to the faith journey. But they, being products of uh, human constructs themselves in the American South and Arkansas, uh, found themselves as adults trying to raise their family and love their children the best they could, uh, expressing their faith through the life of a small little Southern Baptist Church congregation in Hot Springs, Arkansas that I grew up in. And uh, uh, so I'm, I'm trying to paint my understanding of deconstruction. And so you're handed a faith package, and obviously you think, well, my mother and my dad are taking me down this road. It's got to be right and good and healthy. And in many ways it was right and good and healthy. Uh, but there comes a point in life for any number of reasons where that human construct that was handed you, you begin to see maybe needs to be deconstructed so that you can take a larger look at life and get a better picture of how maybe some other people's constructs have helped and served them well. And so deconstruction is all about, quite honestly, tearing down faith packages and philosophical notions you've been giving uh, with a view to hopefully getting a larger construct. Uh, so that's, man, a real layman's uh, definition of deconstruction. And it's a very scary thing for some people to go through. And many of us don't actually uh, 
just have a conscious moment where I think, okay, it's time for me to deconstruct. Actually, what happens is through some kind of death, loss, pain, frustration, human error, as in my case, the error, if you want to call it that, of alcoholism, and other errors I'll talk about that I've made in my life, you find yourself kind of in retrospect knowing, realize, well, everything I've held dear in life is actually being de deconstructed whether I want it to be or not. So I'm not all that aggressive in my own deconstruction. It's just kind of falling apart around me. But so there's a little, you know, layman's introduction to deconstruction. But so I've been binge listening to the deconstruction podcast, which I highly recommend for you. It'll shake you up a little bit. Start with episode one and just go. And there's like 50 episodes already or something like that. Another uh, thing I've been binge listening to is uh, some podcasts from a really neat church in Franklin, Tennessee, uh, Grace Point Church. Stan Mitchell's the pastor. I've had the great pleasure of meeting Stan and having a cup of coffee with him a time or two, and uh, or maybe just only a time where he and and my wife and I sat on the porch of uh, what used to be their campus and uh, just chatted for about an hour or so about the faith journey. Uh, Grace Point's a neat church uh, that Stan actually is the founding pastor of, and it has become noted in the. Uh, emergent network and in the world at large by some who are paying attention as a church that came out two or three years ago as being fully affirming of all people, which would include a gay, lesbian, transgender, uh, the LGBTQ community. Uh, and, and they did so at great cost in many ways although it's a deconstructing cost for them that I think in the grand scheme of life will prove to be a, a beautiful thing. But if you would like to hear one amazing voice uh, about a person who grew up in a traditional denominational life, in his case, uh, Stan's case, uh, uh, United Pentecostal, and, uh, and I've always kind of in my life sort of branded United Pentecostals as, as maybe not so smart. And how wrong could that have been? Just, I mean, that's just a prejudice that I held for reasons I don't fully know, maybe just because the way most of the ladies in the UPC dress or, you know, how stupid is that? You know, you look at some the way someone's dressed and the way their hair is done and the way they don't have any makeup and say, well, that's dumb and therefore they're dumb. I, I'm not proud of this, but that's kind of the way I've thought my whole life. And boy, Stan Mitchell is helping me see, well, here's a guy that's pretty bright, pretty smart, pretty willing to wrestle with life as it is. And, uh, and so he's on a journey of progressive evangelicalism. And uh, I'm not going to talk about all that that means right now, but Stan is an amazing voice. I can't encourage you enough to find his podcast and listen to uh, Stan Mitchell and about the journey of Grace Point, most recently where they've changed campuses and the three or four podcasts leading up to the move from one campus to a, that they own to another one that they're just in rented or borrowed facilities. And uh, his description of the journey of that church and their move deeper into progressive, more liberal expression of 
uh, the Christian faith and uh, his vision and their vision for the future, it's really worth listening to if you're a deconstructing sort and wonder where this thing might go. Uh, a possibility of where it might go for you is the way it's unfolding at Grace Point. So, uh, among other things that listening to all these podcasts does for me, it, it, it inspires me to take hard looks at, at what I hold is valuable and dear and meaningful and, uh, and what I would consider to be the kind of framework or the, the track upon which I'm running my life and, uh, and how what I say that I hold as valuable actually impacts my daily life and my relationships. It's one thing to say this is my truth and this is what I hold as truth and this is what I believe, it's quite another thing to say, okay, what I hold as true and valuable and honorable and even if you want to say universal, in other words, it's, if it's true anywhere, it's true everywhere, uh, how, how does that impact my daily life and my relationships? And, uh, and really, you know, I guess there's a bit of hypocrite in all of us. I'm highly convinced there's a whole lot of hypocrite in me. I'm not happy about that, but I don't always live out in actual relational issues the things that if you put a gun to my head and said, what do you hold as valuable and true, uh, that I would list as valuable and true. And so part of the human challenge and, and part of being fully human is to, to, I think, marry the way I actually live and do my life with the things that I hold to be true and valuable. And maybe the reverse of that is true. If you'll look at how you live and do your life, that tells you what you hold is really valuable. And maybe some of the things you hold as valuable need to be deconstructed and deposed of and, uh, and build a new construct. So ah, it gets confusing. But anyway, uh, as I'm doing this podcast today, I think I've already mentioned this, October 11, 2017, it occurred to me uh, yesterday morning, while I was playing golf alone, listening to those podcasts, enjoying the wonder of crisp fall air as it made its way into Fayetteville, Arkansas, and, uh, and I must say admiring my approving ability to hit a golf ball, uh, it occurred to me, man, you know, you have been retired one full year and 10 days, it's now 10 and a half days, and you need to do some thinking about experiences and lessons learned in this first year of the hopefully very, very long last chapter of your life. So that's kind of self-talk I was having with myself uh, while I was playing golf. And incidentally, uh, may I just add for the record, day before yesterday, after 40 years of being a golfer, I hit my first hole-in-one, 172 yards, number 13, at uh, Paradise Valley Golf Course 
in Fayetteville, Arkansas with five or six witnesses, it happened. I struck the ball. I knew it was pure when I hit it. It looked good. It landed, I thought, and others on the T-Box Express, that may go in. And in fact, it did. And I can't describe to you how cool that feels. Uh, only just to say that in addition to this podcast, that's about all I've thought about for three days. It really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of the history of the world, but for somehow, some way, in ways I cannot explain, making a hole in one gives me the sense that, well, the universe, in fact, does make sense. And that's crazy, and it's irrelevant, but it's real in my life right now. But at any rate, all of that combined, you know, getting better at golf and having a chance to kind of play it every day, uh, it's a dream come true, and uh, and and listening to podcasts while I play by myself has caused me to to do some hardcore reflection on uh, my first year of retirement and what I described as I hope a very very long uh, on the clock last chapter of my life, assuming health will stay good and and, and meaningful. So uh, so what I'm going to do for this podcast, that was a long, long introduction, just kind of update you kind of what's, what's been going on a little bit with my podcast listening as opposed to producing, but uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend, and I have spent some time just making a list of uh, some things I think this first year of retirement have taught me that I think might have some application for you who might listen in your life and in your journey, and most of you may not be retired, but you're anticipating that day coming. And uh, maybe this will help you kind of prepare for it a little bit or uh, or inspire you to move on into it if you're kind of getting close. Uh, but here, man, it hit me. There I'll go saying man again. I don't. That's a bad habit I got. Anyway, good people, it hit me that... Uh, Freedom from obligations to and connection with an institution has been wonderfully liberating. So that's my first reflection after a year of being retired is that, and after I got off the initial shock of it and kind of some adjustments Uh, that I think every retired person had to make, I realized in retrospect after one year and 10 days that to be free from obligations to and connection with an institution has been amazingly and wonderfully liberating. I cannot tell you how absolutely and wonderfully and amazingly and liberatingly free I feel almost every day that doesn't mean I I I don't wrestle with hard questions and struggle with emotional ups and downs and and it doesn't mean I don't have challenges in in my most meaningful relationships uh and all that but but at the same time in the midst of a very real just day-to-day life that doesn't include work anymore. I just can't tell you how good it feels to just feel free. 
So I got thinking about freedom from institutional constraints. And I uh, just thought through my life, and I'm, I'm probably no different than, than like anybody maybe in the history of the world, uh, but at least I'm, I'm just telling my story right now. But, you know, for my entire life, and you're probably the same way, up until October 1st, 2016, for my entire life, I was deeply connected uh, in some way, shape, or form to an institution. And uh, sometimes to multiple institutions at a time. Now, I want to say this about institutions and institutional life in general. Institutions are a good thing, a needed thing, a valuable thing. And uh, our world would be much worse off without some institutions. And I think our world would be worse off without all the institutions that, that I've been had the privilege uh, to be a part of in my life. So let me get that out there. Institutions, uh, in many ways, are very good, needed, and valuable. But then I want to say, uh, this is a one-year retired guy's perception, feeling free from institutions, that institutions, though good and needed and valuable, can sap the very life out of a person, and they can inhibit the experience of being fully human, and they can entrap a person into a way of life that wants to protect the values of whatever institution he's a part of, and that's important to do that, but at the same time, it can sap the very life out of you. I'll try to give some examples of that without demonizing anybody, you know, as we go through this. But let me just say that my historical list of institutions uh, that helped shape my life for good and ill is a, it's a long list as I got thinking about it yesterday. And I want to list them, say something about uh, all the institutions, or at least a big part of the institutions that have really uh, shaped my life. And this would be, say, from adolescence onward. Uh, there's obviously a long list of educational institutions. Like I went to... Uh, Lakeside Public Schools in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Did the first uh, six years of school in, uh, in a little country school called Red Oak, three-room school. And man, as I think about that school and how that experience with 75 or 80 other students who had all six grades in three classrooms, and so you had two grades in each class, and uh, God, I could sit around and... and talk about Red Oak School and my memories of that little place. But, but no doubt that little environment uh, shaped me, and it, it taught me a lot about, I don't know, just in, in, in addition to the three R's of reading, writing, and arithmetic, it just taught me a lot about, about human relationships and uh, 
And I just have so many fond memories of playing in that little playground encircled by a rock fence and the safety of having a fence around your life. And, uh, man, we were loved and cared for and nurtured in Red Oak, and that shaped who I am, no question. And then uh, Lakeside Junior High and High School uh, was an amazing place. I think there were 65. No, I think there were 90 people in my uh, graduating class. The 65 that I spoke of was uh, my rank. So I was, you know, on the bottom half of uh, the intellects in Lakeside Public School, class of 68. But, uh, God, what a great environment. I could talk about a lot. I went from there to a school called the University of Central Arkansas. At the time, it was called, I think, State College of Arkansas, and maybe its name changed to UCA while I was there or not. I can't remember the details on that. It's now called University of Central Arkansas, Conway, Arkansas. At that time, a small little sleepy village, kind of northwest of Little Rock. And, uh, and at UCA, I did not do well at all in the academic world. And I learned there how ill-prepared I was uh, for an academic life. Uh, and that's not to blame anybody back at Red Oak or Lakeside High. They, they did the best they could with, with what I brought to the table at those public schools. But at UCA, uh, in er, I guess when you're 18, is that early adolescence or middle, middle adolescence? Uh, I was not prepared to take on the responsibilities of going to college. What I was prepared to do, though, was to party like a animal in 1968. And I'm not necessarily proud of that, but that's part of my story and my involvement with the educational institution of UCA uh, in my memory, you know, 40 some odd years removed was I cut class too much, but I won won the party. And uh, uh, that's not all bad because I got some good friends some people I still bump into Razorback games and other things like that that are dear to me uh, from those experiences. And social media has been a real need help to help help us reconnect with people from our past. And know there's lessons to be learned from our uh, frolicking around in uh, those adolescent days when we're just trying to discover who we are. Uh, uh, after UCA, there was a military institution came into my life called the U.S. Navy. And uh, as I think about my six years involvement with that, two on active duty, I realized that institution uh, played a major role in shaping who I am in my life and gave me an opportunity uh, in, I guess, mid, mid and late adolescence, moving into early adulthood, to actually have some constraints uh, and having to... Uh, kind of buck up and shine my shoes and polish my belt and fold my clothes and and uh, and report to duty at 7 o'clock every morning and salute someone, uh, added some discipline and some, some, some responsibility and rigor to my life that uh, I needed at that time. I needed somebody to tell me to straighten up and fly right, uh, at least as it came to showing up when you're supposed to show up. And, uh, and also, while in the Navy, uh, had the opportunity to have my world expanded a lot through travel. And, uh, and even though I'd been out of state, maybe to Florida and Chicago or something a time or two in my early years as a kid, 
I hadn't done a whole lot of travel, and the Navy uh, opened the world to me in ways uh, that had never been opened. I had my first airplane flight while uh, a 20-year-old kid going to a boot camp, and then I wound up getting to go to Europe a time or two and Cuba, and, and uh, the world started opening to me because of the gift of an institution, uh, the U.S. Navy. Got out of the Navy, and... Uh, and then uh, I'm listing my institutions and institutional life, and I'll try to do this quickly and bring it to a point here in a minute. But uh, I left the, the Navy and wound up going to a, an institution, a religious uh, educational institution at Washita Baptist University in Arkadelphia, Arkansas. And I, I went to school there for three years and wound up kind of got my head on straight about wanting to pursue academic interests and, and figured out that the best way to get out of college is to go to class, read the chapter that uh, a professor assigns, and uh, listen, take notes, study for the test, and, and uh, you can wind up getting a grade point and, and get a degree, which is an important thing to do in, in our world, get that degree. So I got one as a student. And uh, there's a whole ethos and culture of Washita Baptist University. The fact that it was Baptist uh, said something about it and the mores, which were not bad to be a part of in, in, in any shape, form, or fashion that I think of, and the relationships that were built. The fact that it was a university suggested that there were a great number of people there who were uh, deeply committed to help people learn. And, uh, and I like the word university because it's got a universe in it. And, uh, and man, that's, that's what people at a good university are trying to do is help you connect to larger truths that may have uh, a wider, broader, more inclusive, all-encompassing uh, view of things. And even though it was... Uh, traditional uh, Baptist University, I found OBU to be an institution that expanded my world in ways that it had not been expanded before. So I'm so grateful for it. I left uh, there, Washita, uh, which brought me into the institution of marriage. I'm not going to talk about it in this podcast, but to go to another uh, institution called Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. Spent three years there and got a master's degree of divinity. And uh, as I reflect back, you know, almost 40 years removed from being there, uh, there's another institution that I was a part of that had ways of doing life and ways of thinking that have impacted me for profound good. Uh, my fondest memories of, of Southwestern Seminary were some professors who uh, helped give me the gift of knowing that it's okay and desirable to think for myself and to not accept things just as the way they've always been. And uh, most people wouldn't associate with a Baptist seminary uh, today, that kind of ethos or spirit or mindset, uh, typically uh, the seminaries of a more conservative ilk, which 
I think now most of the Southern Baptist ones are that, and I don't want to demonize them anyway, but but it's it's more thought that they've kind of discovered what the basic certain fundamental truths are and and education is kind of about learn these basic truths that we've figured out and then go propagate them for the rest of your life. That's a gross oversimplification of the way it is, but there is some of that spirit in those institutions now. Uh, but when I was there, I don't recall that being the spirit, and I know that my life, I think, has been shaped positively by having a three-year experience pursuing a degree in theology by some great, great professors, some of them now dead. Uh, in particular, I'm thinking right now of a guy named D. David Garland, who was an amazing human being and uh, taught Old Testament. And uh, I've forgotten so much of what Dr. Garland taught us about the uh, Old Testament, but I haven't forgotten him. And what a gracious, loving, full-hearted human being he was and how he created in me a love uh, for others, uh, compassion, or at least the notion that I could live compassionately. And God can't talk enough about D. David Garland, but what a personality that shaped me. And then another, I, I just want to say now, because it, it's made a difference in who I am, and this is how institutions can impact you, particularly when it's a good one, is because they will introduce you to personalities that impact your life more so than the institution itself. Uh, so I had this theology class with a guy named Dr. William Hendricks, and we had this guest professor one day by the name of Elton Trueblood, who was a philosophy teacher at a university somewhere. I don't, I don't think Dr. Trueblood's still alive, uh, but I'd read a couple of his books and uh, hadn't read any of his stuff lately, but Dr. Trueblood's quite a spokesperson and uh, quite a thinker. And I never will forget this, that Dr. Trueblood said the value of a seminary education, young men, I guess we're mostly men. We had a few ladies in the class then, uh, not near enough. But, but whatever, he, he said the value of a seminary education is not so much in the facts you gather and put into your head most of which you'll forget, and he was right about that, but he said the value of a seminary education is the personalities you encounter along the way. I've never forgotten that, and, uh, and I realize that my life today, even though I can't recite what were, as I recall, some spellbinding lecture outlines and, and ideas that really... I think expanded my world and made me excited about the world and about the good news of Jesus Christ and uh, about being a positive force in the world. I can't remember the details of the lectures, and, I'm, and you know, I, I can I can barely do the first two or three letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And I studied ancient languages, and I can't remember all that stuff. But I do know my life was impacted by. Human beings I encountered who were larger than life in so many ways and who, who whether what they 
said in their lecture was worth remembering or not, what you found in them was a human being who was just passionate about learning, passionate about caring for others, passionate about being a force for good in the world. And, uh, and so that was my educational journey and how it's impacted me uh, in brief. Then uh, also in addition to educational and military institutions, there have been uh, some religious institutions I've been a part of. I grew up like Hamilton Baptist Church, a little small country Baptist church. And I'm not going to say much about it right now, but, but I have pretty fond memories of that's been a playful, happy place. Uh, I do have some memories of, you know, some of the hellfire that it didn't really warp me too bad, I don't think. But I, I can remember kind of scratching my head always as a kid thinking, I don't know, man. I don't know. Uh, and although it wasn't f fair and my parents were not all that hard, we we didn't, I mean, we went to church, but we didn't really talk about it that much at home. Uh, uh, I witnessed in my mom and dad true Christianity. I have no doubt a more caring pair of humans I've mentioned earlier and benevolent, always involved in trying to help someone else I've never seen. So they had a direct connect between whatever their understanding of faith was and living that out in the world and the community of kindness and love and generosity toward other people. And so that institution impacted me that way. It showed me that is part of this journey. Uh, I didn't even mention, or I didn't put in my notes. I mean, I, so when I was in seminary, I, I also was a part of a Baptist church uh, that I have good memories of that experience and relationships that were built there. I was also, then when I got out of seminary near the end, I got a job, first time, first job really as a, an adult, which was could be considered full time, was as a pastor of a little country church in Arkadelphia, Arkansas, outside of Arkadelphia called Richwoods Baptist Church. And, uh, and so I was there four years as, as full-time pastor, and no doubt that institutional life there impacted me in good and positive ways. But it also introduced me to the absolute struggle of congregational life and how uh, maybe ill-suited I was for that leadership position because I maybe wasn't as good at conflict resolution with people as possible, and I was too young and immature and full of myself and maybe ego-driven to, to truly identify with the pain of human life. But looking back on that, one thing that I do know Richwood's Baptist Church taught me, uh, and it might have unfolded the same way in any church anywhere in the world, uh, but that man, in so many ways, life is tragic. And I can't tell you in that four years and then in the time leading up to my time there, how many people in that small little community had an unbelievable tragedy in their life. A child dies of cancer. Uh, I mean, it's obviously aging people get sick and die. And, and even though that's in the routine of life, it's still a tragedy when someone falls dead of a heart attack and 
I mean, early in my career there, my first death was was an experience I'll never forget where one of our men just fell dead chasing up some cows. And my first call to respond to someone in time of death was that one. And uh, I remember walking to that house and, and the wife in shock and horror and asking the question as I walk in, what do we do to deserve this? And uh, I think I knew enough uh, at least to say and answer her question, you did nothing. This is not the way it works. God is not the kind of God who, when we do something wrong, kills people we love. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of people will live with that notion, and I think that was her notion. That's what had been given to her, that it's a tit-for-tat world, and and when we do wrong, bad things happen, and so when somebody we love dies the question, first question was, what did we do wrong to deserve this? And, uh, man, I encountered that a bunch of times. The children that died, car wrecks, other things. And it seemed like the go-to question would be, what do we do to deserve this? And, and I just recall trying to live out, even though I had no understanding and still don't of why good people die, other than just accidents happen, cancer comes. I don't get it. I don't like it, but it's the real world. Uh, but I remember wrestling with those good people at Richwoods, with so many of them, with the tragedy of life. And I had so many happy memories of joy and fellowship. They helped my wife and I welcome uh, two of our three sons into the world. Our oldest son was was uh, three or four months old when we got called there, and so they helped invest in loving our young toddler children. And our lives are impacted positively by the institution of Richwoods Baptist Church. Uh, oh, I failed to say back on about Washita. Actually, I, I worked there for four years, too. I'll say more about that in a minute, but enough. I, I'm, the point I'm trying to make in this, don't get lost in it as I go through this journey of memorying my institutions, is how institutions impact us for good. Uh, while I worked at Washita, uh, the institution there impacted me for good. It started... A, a retirement fund that was consistent with the retirement fund that was being contributed to by my work at Richwoods Baptist Church. I profit from that this very day. Every month I get a check, and some of that money was was money contributed by the good people of Richwoods Baptist Church to my retirement. And uh, same at Washita, the part of my compensation package when I worked there as a director of religious activities, part of my compensation was money contributed to a retirement fund that I cash a check from every month of my life right now. So institutions, you know, impact you for good. And I uh, could not be more grateful. Uh, and that's part of the point I'm wanting to make about how the, the positive role institutions play in our life. Uh, but then while I was working at Washita, I had the chance to be an interim pastor at Central Baptist Church in Hot Springs, Arkansas. My memories of that are, that was like in 1987, that I spent a year there helping a people try to heal from uh, the abuse of a uh, fundamentalist pastor. Uh, man, it's hard to believe how how many guys in the ministry, and I mean some people that were under my ministry may, may think I was the mean some bitch uh, for 
lack of a better term. I hope I wasn't, but I mean, maybe I was. I don't know. But, uh, but, but, man, sometimes I guess I'm trying to say it's hard to believe how many guys are in the ministry or have been in the ministry or just want to be mean to, to human beings. And uh, uh, that's my memory of how those people were when I got there. And so I, I had a year to just kind of be kind and friendly and loving and, uh, and just try to help some people heal from uh, some abusive kind of stuff and uh, have good memories of Central Baptist Church. Uh, one of the sad memories was it was kind of right downtown Hot Springs, and the town had been moving east and west, and and uh, and the congregation was more uh, older and traditional, and and it wasn't growing. And in Baptist life, if you're not growing, you know, then you're irrelevant. Uh, I don't think that's true, but that's kind of the thought, and it's a sadness, and that's part of institutional life is. If we're going to keep this institution alive, we got to always have new growth coming in, new people, new faces, new money, new opportunities to, you know, maintain the building and build new buildings. And that's one of the problems of institutional life is, is that we build a big institution. A lot of the institution has to do with bricks and mortar and debt and salaries and stuff like that. And to keep this thing alive, which has at its heart some really good purposes, it takes money and structure and policies, and and then that all gets complicated. And that's true of any institution we become a part of. And my memories of Central Baptist Church was that, man, this thing is dying, not because any bad people there or just demographic changes and so forth and so on. And, and and that was a hard thing, and and that's one of the lessons of institutional life is that institutional institutions have a life cycle like humans do, and sometimes the institution just has to die. I'm not saying that that was what needed to happen at Central Baptist Church. I think it's still there, and I hope it's thriving. I don't, I don't even know anything about it right now, but I know that church that institution taught me about life cycles of institutions uh after i left there and left washita where i worked i uh, became part of an institution called the foreign mission board of the southern baptist convention and uh, that institution helped finance not help totally financed uh the way for my family and i to live in Durban, South Africa for four years where we were working on uh, university campuses and got to know a lot of people and became involved with some institutions there, uh, University of Durban Westfield and uh, Natal University, and uh, not as an employee, but, but loosely connected as a kind of an adjunct, not just person who was around the campus trying to develop relationships with students and help them on their faith journey. And then while there, we were members of a wonderful congregation that I love to this day called Westfield Baptist Church. It may have been called Highway Baptist too, but uh, had the great, great and wonderful experience of being back in Westfield Baptist Church earlier this year as Janie and I went back to South Africa the first time in uh, 21 years. And I got to spend some time with some great human beings there who have seriously and wonderfully 
impacted my life. And I'm a better person because I was a part of the institution of Westville Baptist Church in Durban, South Africa. And some uh, South African people there that taught me so much about kindness and goodness and love and celebration of life and a larger understanding of uh, the difficulties and the challenges of living in South Africa and apartheid and all of those things. And so uh, that's my institutions. Uh, I, uh, just a few of them. I still got a few to name and I got to kind of move this to a wrap. I might have to go session two. But uh, some other institutions of which I've been a part. And, and the whole point in this is to show you, maybe it'll help you think through your institutions and how they've impacted you. But I've been a part or connected to what was called the Arkansas Baptist State Convention. That organization, institution, was a if not full owner, part owner of a Washington Baptist University where I studied and where I later worked. And I realize now in retrospect how much of an impact the ideas and philosophies and the mores and the uh, behavioral expectations of an institution uh, filter into and impact how you do your life. And... Uh, and I was able to see while a part of the Arkansas Baptist State Convention, things start to take fruit in how institutions are changed and challenged and there's political power structures and, and no way do I want to demonize anybody in this deal. But, but in my journey of life and relationship with institutions, after I got out of seminary in 1979, I think it was in 1980, that a thing developed in Southern Baptist life that could be called the fundamentalist uh, political takeover of Southern Baptist life. And there was a clear-cut agenda uh, made public by an evangelist named James Robinson and a late pastor from Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee called Adrian Rogers that... There was a concern about ultra-liberalism in our institutions, if you will, all the colleges and universities and different institutions that the Baptists owned, that there was too many liberals uh, in leadership. And so they had a stated agenda to take control of the boards of these institutions and to plant people who saw the Bible and theology more in line with a more uh, extremely conservative view of life. And let me just say, they succeeded. Their stated agenda of a politically driven uh, takeover happened. And uh, many things happened. There's plenty of good history books written about it by now. Did I say many good things happened? If I did, I didn't mean that. Uh, many things happened. And some, some were good, I guess. I don't know. Uh, I don't need to judge it. Uh, in my view, most of it was not good, so I guess I am judging it, but I need to just let that go uh, in retrospect. But there was this takeover, and that politics of institutional life impacted me in ways uh, that I think were not so good. 
I could have handled it better in retrospect. Could have, would have, should have, but I was only able to view life through the lens that I had on at that time. And I felt like, you know, I had profited so wonderfully and beautifully in my experience in the institutions like Washita University and Southwestern Seminary. My experience with those institutions was positive, good, helpful. It enlarged my world. I thought it helped me be a better world citizen. It helped me have a more expansive understanding of life, a more all-embracing view of people. Uh, helped me see the scriptures as a dynamic document that had to be interpreted and reinterpreted and in context and not just a static, straight, from heaven, word from God that cannot be questioned or wrestled with. I mean, I, I was given all that by these institutions, and now all of a sudden there's this political war going on to say, no, we can't think that way anymore. Here's the received truth. Here's the inerrant truth. Here's the unassailable truth. Here's the unquestionable truth. This is the way it is. If you don't believe it, you're out of here. And they did. They fired people. People lost their jobs. Careers were ruined because people saw things differently than those that were politically in charge. And that is a picture of institutionalism that is not pretty, but it is true by experience probably about everywhere where there are institutions, particularly where it's in some way, shape, or form a democratic institution where people get a voice in how things happen there can be political takeovers. And, uh, and sometimes that's for good and sometimes that's for ill. Sometimes those wanting the power that can come their way by generating support of those who can vote their way have noble, benevolent, good, healthy, larger view things that could be helpful if they seize the power, if you will. And there are those that... that could have narrow and restricting and binding and backward views of things. And that's just the risk of politics. And maybe we're seeing that played out in our national politic right now, not to go there too much. So that's part of my institutional background. And that's kind of a negative part. But also, uh, I just want to mention before I move to like a conclusion here. Uh, First Baptist Church, Marion, Arkansas, where I was a uh, senior pastor for 92 to 97, uh, seven and a half years or so. Uh, and then we were members of First United Methodist Church of Marion, Arkansas. And I'm now a part of a church called Vintage Fellowship that uh, is new and still real fresh and has not become overly institutionalized as yet. And I love it, but man, you know, God, I just, I'm just going through a list of how institutions have been a part of and have impacted my life. Professionally, I actually made a living with some of these institutions The aforementioned Richwoods Baptist church, Washtenaw university, central Baptist church, foreign mission board, first Baptist Marion, uh, almost 25 years of my life as a family man needing to bring home a check every Friday or every month were tied in to Baptist institutions. And I cannot be grateful enough for how generous and 
providing and loving those people were. I guess every dollar I ever made from those institutions was a dollar made because someone in the world would tithe every week and, uh, and write a check out of their love for God and love for the cause of that institution. And man, I don't, I don't ever want to lose sight of that, you know, that my family was fed, my mortgage was paid, my health insurance was bought, my retirement plan was funded, my vacations were provided for uh, by people who cared enough about the good news of Christ to, uh, to give to uh, local churches that I worked for and who cared enough to give to that local church so some of that money would go in Baptist life to what we call the cooperative program where that money went to fund institutions where I was able to get, a, I think, a really good education. And uh, later then to work for for two of those institutions, Washtenaw University, where I had a generous compensation package. And it's all money they paid me every month that was the gifts of good people. And uh, I can't lose sight of that. Same with the Foreign Mission Board. My chance to live in South Africa for four years on a, you know, it wasn't, a rich man's salary, but it was decent enough. I mean, it's a rich man compared to most people in the world. And, uh, man, I'm just I'm so grateful that good people uh, and generous people would write a check every month, and some of that filtered its way to me educationally and, uh, and otherwise, you know, professionally. So that's a profound impact that, institutions make on your life and then i want to say this in the last 18 years of my life before i retired i was part of a another institution not a religious institution uh but a business institution uh the farm bureau companies uh of arkansas and that was related to another institution the arkansas farm bureau federation and those institutions had a profound impact on my life, the bulk of which that impact is incredibly positive and wonderful. Some travel opportunities I never would have had, some opportunities to make some money that I didn't know you could make that kind of money in the business world. It is insane. Uh, I just didn't know it, uh, how, how good that can be. And I'm not saying that braggadociously, but gratefully for the opportunity that the last 18 years of my working life had to fit me into the situation I'm in now where I get to go play golf every day if I want to and uh, go to South Africa and enjoy my grandchildren and, and so many luxurious things that are part of my life, and they're all there because of opportunities I found in institutions. So... All these institutions had and still have profound, good, wonderful impact on my life journey. I cannot and I do not want to escape the positive impact of these wonderful institutions on my life. The churches I mentioned, both that I was a part of as a member or as an employee on the staff, as I've said, they provided not only in my living, 
but a wealth of significant and meaningful relationships and friendships and life-affirming meaning. I saw on Facebook just recently where one of the guys, a friend of mine, is going through a painful divorce. And I, I don't talk to him often, uh, often enough, but, but man, I was able to call that guy and we were able to rehearse some of our history together, uh, which is a history of screw-ups for both of us. And uh, as well as a history of other good, fun, delightful, warm-hearted memories. But I just know that as I reflect back on the institutions and the faith communities where I lived out my life, even though there's so many, you know, negative things about those faith communities and some of the stuff they believe and still do and, and everything. But I don't want to focus on that. I just want to focus on, man, relationships formed with people in the crucible of very real living that just you never would have had had you not been a part of that institution. So I can't be grateful enough. Uh, the educational institutions that I was a part of, as I've mentioned, I'm just summarizing. God, how they impacted me so positively. I was on the square at uh, Farmer's Market here in Fayetteville one time earlier this summer, and I saw one of the old political science teachers from Washita that uh, I don't think I actually ever had a class of his. I heard some of his lectures, and he'd speak maybe at chapel or something like that a time or two, and He's my go-to guy for uh, when I when I want to know, man, what's going on in the world of politics. Uh, guy named Hal Bass. God, I love that guy so much. Such a giant of a human being and such a scholar uh, and so fair and uh, and to help me get a picture of what's going on in the political dynamics of life. And I was thinking, man, like him and others and. God, you go back to a football game or something, you see some guy that was your biology teacher and and you realize how he helped open your mind to evolutionary thought at a Baptist university. And you're so grateful for these people that just enlarged your world. And then when I think about the guys in the, my field of study and theology and philosophy and biblical studies and that sort of thing and how... These people put me on a lifelong path of knowing that there is always a vast amount of stuff to know that's untapped yet undiscovered. I think what an education really does for you, if it's a quality education, you should leave that institution knowing how much you don't know as opposed to how much you do know. And I think the institutions that I was able to be a part of gave me that gift. They gave me that gift of knowing that there is a vast, untapped, un-yet-discovered sea of discoverable knowledge and experience that we haven't wrapped our minds and hearts around yet and that it's out there to pursue. So, man, am I grateful for those institutions. They've given me a track to run on for my whole life. 
and for the whole rest of my life, which I hope gets I hope I'm one of those guys that bumps a hundred. I mean, hardcore past the other side, assuming I can still play golf. Man, so I learned all this at two Southern Baptist institutions before 1980. Ask questions, value thinking, to be quote liberal. Huh, how about that? To listen to other voices. Man, what does liberal mean? To me, it means be open-minded, be loving, be humble enough to know that the other view needs to be listened to. Did I mention to love learning as a lifetime aim? To care about the larger world? To see borders as not something to be erected like a damn wall in Mexico. Pardon me. I'll let some uh, political frustration come out there. But to see borders not as something to fear or to erect, but as borders as something to cross. That on the other side of the border, there's life and there's love and there's opportunity. That there's people who, though, are different from me in language and in skin color and in philosophy and in world understanding, that on the other side of borders, there are human beings made in the image of God who love their kids and grandkids like I love my kids and grandkids and who just are battling to want a helpful, hopeful, peaceful joyful life. Borders are not something to be feared. Borders are something to be crossed because on the other side of the border, there's life and love and opportunity and not a project. Man, I learned that at my institutions. In the institutions where I worked and earned a living, I was unbelievably blessed by generous, fair, good people. And uh, I, I really, man, they provided me for a lifetime of adequate and actually luxurious housing compared to most people in the world. I've mentioned this health care, retirement contribution, relationships. Uh, these institutions provided opportunities for life-transforming cross-cultural experiences. My four years in South Africa, I cannot tell you how those four years of living cross-culturally have made me a better human being. And no doubt my children, uh, who were young at the time, ages like four through nine, they're, I think they're better human beings and world citizens and and have a wider view of life because an institution gave us an opportunity to live in a cross-cultural setting. It, you know, it really wasn't supposed to be all about us, but God dang, if we didn't wind up being the beneficiaries of the gift of, of living cross-culturally by an institution, I'm really honestly, in retrospect, not sure who I impacted that much along the way. But I do know I was impacted and my world was enlarged and made better by good institutions that I was a part of. And so 
in retirement, I, every day as I experience freedom from those institutions and some of the demands they placed on my life, I still try to count the blessings of institutional life. And, and God, you know, being grateful is, is so good. So I want to just, in closing, though, say something very briefly about the other side of it. It's true. Institutions can bless. They, and they do bless. And my life is a classic example of the blessing of institutional life. But then it's also true that institutions can suppress. They can hold down. There can be elements of institutional life that sap the very life right out of you, that inhibit and discourage freedom, that imprison one to the demands of the perpetuation of the earlier values of the institution at the expense of individual freedom and expression. And you can be a part of an institution and begin to have questions about maybe some of the original core values and think that maybe things need to be rethought and it can cause you trouble. i give you one uh, classic example right now. I was at this church. I won't even name it because I don't want to, I don't, I don't name which one it was. It doesn't matter. But anyway, we, it was deacon election time. And uh, so one of the old men in the church, one of the old power brokers, he was rejecting, he was one of the deacons, he was going to reject a guy because uh, this guy was married to a woman who in, early in her life had had a failed marriage. And uh, he said he didn't qualify for being a deacon, which a deacon is a servant, you know. And he goes, this guy does not qualify because his wife now was once divorced, you know, 25 years ago or something like that. And, man, I... I didn't see it that way. I just thought, no, nah, that can't be what those scriptures in the New Testament mean. And so I was willing to challenge that institutional belief. And there was this institutional belief in that congregation that if you if there was divorce there, then they they were DQ'd for service for life. And that was to me, not good news. But I remember saying, I don't want to fight with this guy about it. I said, well, maybe we should restudy uh, the Bible on this. You know, I thought it can't hurt us. Just kind of look again, maybe rethink our traditional interpretations. I'll never forget his words. He said, God rest his soul. He's, he's gone now. May he rest in peace. Um, and since I don't actually think there probably is a hell, I know he's in heaven. And he is, and no question about it. It's not my, I'm not judgmental. But anyway, God rest his soul. He said, I don't care what the Bible says. Uh, this is what it's going to be. Uh, well, I bucked that, and it cost me. It cost me dearly. And uh, what I learned in that is, man, you, you can buck the institutional mores of the institution you're in, and you're going to pay a price when you do so. And sometimes it needs to be. I probably should have paid a dearer price quicker than I did, but I did learn that about institutional life. It's so restricting. I remember the deep frustration going away from there thinking, we can't even talk about this? We can't even like have 
constructive dialogue about this. We can't even just, you know, be on a path where so well maybe the way they used to believe it is is you know maybe we ought to rethink that. And the answer was no, we can't rethink that. At least we couldn't there, and that I think held me back some. And I felt trapped because man, I need to get paid every Friday. I need that eight hundred fifty dollar check. Or $1,000 a week that I was making back then, which was a heck of a dang good money. I had a mortgage to pay. I had kids in school, you know. And I couldn't, I felt trapped in the institution. Is like I can't challenge these long-held standards, of which I've just given you one example, and there are many, many more. I can't, I can't be different from that because I, they'll fire me if I do. And so you wind up suppressing some of your freedom to think and expand. So... That's all the dirty laundry I'm going to air about any of my institutions. I'm not going to air anything dirty about any more of them uh, that I was a part of. I just want to say this. In every institution, in, in addition to all the wonderful good things they're doing for your life and hopefully for other people's life, there is a negative side. There uh, is that aspect where the institution can become even more important than the values that it originally embraced. And the traditions of the institution become even more sacrosanct and sacred than actual the deeper core values that started it in the first place. And even though some of their ideas may be outdated and stale and obviously and clearly wrong, they persist because there's this notion of the sacredness of the institution that cannot and must not and should not be challenged, and therefore institutions can limit our freedom and hold us back and keep us from progressing like we should. That's why I think sometimes the notion of being a progressive person, a progressive Democrat or a progressive just in life is so scary because if you are progressive by very nature, you're wanting to make progress past the kind of traditional staunch things that sort of formulated this institution. And, and that could happen Democrat, Republican, it doesn't matter, whatever, you know, uh, so much, but being a progressive is a scary thing to do. So that's another podcast. So I'm bringing this to a close. Hang with me about two or three more minutes. So all I'm saying here is this, man. Institutions are good and institutions are bad. It's both and. So here I am one year into retirement. And man, am I loving every day of it. And I'm sensing this amazing freedom. And I realize that a lot of the freedom I'm experiencing today has much to do with the fact that I am almost 100% detached from institutional life. I can say whatever the heck I want to right now, and I'm not going to get fired because I'm not working for anybody. And I'm vested in, in my funds that come in, and I can call them whatever names I want to. I'm not going to on this podcast, but I can say whatever I want to about them because, by golly, I don't, I'm don't. i not beholden to them anymore. 
I can still be grateful for their deep values and the way they bless me. At the same time, I'm free to say, boy, this ought to be thought about. This ought to be looked at. This ought to be reevaluated. And so I now have this freedom to think and to live outside the box, outside the walls, outside the fences of institutionalism. That doesn't mean I, I mean, I still got to pay tax and all that stuff, so I guess I'm beholden to those institutions, but you get my point. I'm totally free to ask whatever question may pop into my mind. I am a lifelong believer in God and Jesus Christ the Lord. And at the same time, I have moments in my life where I can ask the question, what if there's nothing to it? And I'm not afraid to ask that question. I'm not afraid to go down that road. I'm not afraid to listen to the voice of an atheist. I'm not afraid to listen to the words of somebody from a tradition so totally foreign to mine that there seems to be no connection. And I'm not afraid to listen and learn from people and sources and voices that are so different from mine. I can ask every question, and it is so unbelievably freedom-inducing. I can allow myself to doubt everything I was ever taught, not doubt because I'm angry or pissed off or frustrated or vindictive or trying to bring negative energy. I've already made it clear I'm so grateful for my institutions. At the same time, I'm free to ask questions and free to ponder and free to doubt and free to see that other ways and other traditions and other expressions of faith and other philosophical bases have driven people's lives and added meaning to them, and what can I learn from them? And I'm free to ponder all the what-ifs and just see where the road leads. Because, you see, I got this base understanding, and it's, it's kind of newly developed or newly solidified with me, and that is this notion of inherent blessing as opposed to inherent cursing. What do I mean by that in quick terms? I mean this, and I mainly formulated these notions or was able to give more expression to them from the reading of a book by my man Richard Rohr called Immortal Diamond. And the basic story is this, and I so think he's on to the universal truth, is that whatever God there is, that God is a loving God, and that every human being that was ever born, and that would include me, is made in the image and the likeness of God and that we are loved and will always be loved and will never not be loved and nothing we could ever do would stop that love. 
we may not be aware of it, awake to it, fully sensitive to that love, grateful for that love, but that love is there. And uh, so that's my basic theological package. God is love, and God has loved me and always has loved me. And it doesn't matter what the institutions say or think or do. I'm free to say and think and do what comes to my mind. Now, it doesn't give me the freedom to be a SOB. It doesn't give me the freedom to be snarky, which, unfortunately, sometimes I am. And if you've noticed a decline in tweets and Facebook posts, it's because I can't escape the ugliness of being snarky and being an ass when I want to try to engage in some things. And I know that's not the way to have conversations with people. There's got to be a way to have conversations about stuff we disagree about that does not involve attacking people or their ideas, but gives us a chance to talk. And so maybe podcasting where it's just me talking is a better way, and hopefully I, I, don't, I won't be snarky, I won't be mean, but I can be honest. This freedom of non-institutional life uh, is a freedom that, that, that puts us on a path where uh, we can truly respect uh, everybody and every issue, try to learn from others, try to learn from those people with whom we violently disagree. Violently is not the word. I, I hope I don't result in violence, but so that's not the right word, but but people with whom I just totally, I just don't get on with. I mean, and let me tell you, one of them right now is Donald J. Trump. I mean, everything that guy does, it, I just, I'm so totally put off by, and I'm trying to live this journey where I go, what I see in him might be a mirror of something that's in my own life still, and maybe there's lessons to be learned. I'm trying to learn them. So, gosh, that's, that's part of me. But I can say that now, and I don't care. Nobody's going to fire me. Uh, some of you may quit listening to my podcast, but I'm going to tell you, if you need to look for somebody that likes Donald J. Trump, it's not me. I don't respect him. Uh, I cannot respect him. I wish I could. Do I want his presidency to succeed? I truly, really do. I wish it would succeed, but not with the current agenda he has because it's an agenda, as I see it, that wants to build walls and not cross borders. It wants to alienate people and not include people. It wants to make life worse for people and not better for people, as I see it. So I didn't mean to put that in, but but I'm free to say that stuff now, so I'm free. But that's still, I don't mean to need to say it with hatred or meanness or, or, or name-calling, uh, that sort of thing. So here was the point of this podcast, institutional freedom. That's your aim in life. Get free of institutions. And you'll get there when you retire. And you can be free even in the institutions, but if you're in a good institution. But institutional freedom puts one in that wide open space where finally you got the space to truly be yourself to concentrate so hard on being a fully human being as opposed to a human doing. I don't have any sales reports. 
I don't have to worry anymore about the attendance and the offering and whether we're going to be able to meet the budget and all that stuff. And, and I don't have to worry about who I'm going to piss off that, you know, they might quit giving or quit buying from us or stuff like that. I and, I, I mean, I might just want to go around and piss people off. Don't get me wrong. But I, I'm just free from all that. And it's given me a chance to just be a human being as opposed to a human doing. And gosh dang, I can't tell you how liberating it is to have nothing to produce, nothing to count, nothing by which to measure success other than just wake up and be present to this day. While I've been doing this podcast, I've had the luxury of looking out the window of my condo where I live and observing gorgeous birds in the trees and knowing that I'm taking a glimpse at something that is divine when I do so. The other day while playing golf, a a uh, butterfly landed on my sleeve as I was walking off of the 16 green. And because I'm about being and not doing now and not just finishing this round, I didn't care if it bothered the guys in my party or not. With all respect to them, I stood there motionless while that butterfly flittered her or his wings on my sleeve and I worshiped. Not the butterfly, but the god of the butterfly. I worshipped beauty. And I stood in absolute awe and wonder, tear to the eye, kind of awestruck at the beauty of the fluttering wings of a butterfly on my arm. And it was like he was my friend. This may sound weird to you, but I'm telling you. It's so like I just stood there and watched him. And when he fluttered off, I said, goodbye, my friend, butterfly. It was a holy, sacred moment. And I was just given the gift of being, unattached to any institution. And I felt and I am feeling as free as that butterfly just to fly around in the sky, hopefully land on some people's sleeve and be a blessing to them. Maybe, maybe, just maybe. What we were supposed to be doing and I was supposed to be doing all along, even when I was a part of those institutions, was to concentrate more on being than on doing and it was possible to respect the traditions and the values and the mission of all the institutions and at the same time be free to be me. I didn't do it as good as I wish I had, but now I've got the gift of waking up to each new day unencumbered by an institution and being present to what is. And that's the first thing I've learned in this one year of retirement, 
And with that, I say, I hope you listen to me again. God bless. Goodbye. People are just too much for me to face. I'll climb way up to the top of the stairs and all my cares just drift.